I love radiant heat. <laughs> Just the sensations in my toes right now give me comfort as I, um, as I I'm just aware there are thousands of ways to be aware. And I hope that, that you begin to sense that for yourselves across this week, this unfolding week, as we unfold um, progressive invitations that, yeah, they're cumulative and um, sometimes they're progressive, sometimes they're linear, most often they're not linear, but that we're giving, we're hoping to offer you ingredients for you to create this recipe of awareness and heartfulness and kindness in your lives and how we each will do that in our own unique and brilliant ways. It's an art form. Uh, And these doorways are they're, they're um, multitudinous. And we begin with awareness and kindness because those doors are, are so inclusive, are so open, not just of the teachings of the Dharma, the wisdom teachings of the Dharma, but the wisdom teachings of so many different faith traditions. And even with the intention of engaging with a specific practice, experimenting, developing those recipes around forgiveness and how does that land in, in each of our lives. We, as we um, have been offering, we enter through the doors of awareness and kindness in this pretty incredible physical landscape that is inviting us to rest into the inner landscape in, along with the, uh, all the support that we get as teachers, as, as practitioners, around the retreat managers, around the kitchen, the cook staff, to take care of us over and over again. And in the stillness, and in the, what is called the nobility of the silence. I just want to recognize that for many communities, silence is not always a positive thing when it, it's tied with imposition or oppression or not being able to express the authenticity of our lives. And so the silence that we're invoking and, and um, Uh, realigning for ourselves is taking back the silence so that the silence can reveal to us our true nature and that which allows freedom to occur. That's what is the definition of nobility, that which leads to freedom. And as we work with that and begin to see more clearly, that's the actual... Um, translation of the word vipassana, which some of you may know is tied with the insight meditation tradition, is to see more clearly. We see how the mind and the heart operate. 
although sometimes, especially for those of you who are new to the retreat form, what it reveals is how painfully the mind and heart operate. So uh, I sometimes, out of my own curiosity, I collect these uh, journal, these um, uh, writings by journalists about their first meditation retreat because mindfulness is now pretty popular. And so now it's in the mainstream press. You're getting reports. So some of the titles of the articles are That Misery We Call Meditation, (laughs) Not So Mindful Retreat, Mindfulness Meditation, It May Be Essential, But Boy, it, It Isn't Easy, Why Meditation Is My Personal Hell. it begins to reveal really the full range of our lives, not just the stillness and the peace, but also what is not peaceful, what is in turmoil. And it asks us, is it possible to live this piece of my life too, this full range? Because we tend to take it for granted we tend to take it for granted that we should be able to have a happy life. That's what we... The fact that this life force is um, surging through this particular body, I deserve something. We take it for granted. We take so much of our, our life for granted. We take our breath for granted, which is one of the beautiful reasons why we turn to it over and over again. How often do we think about that experience of the trajectory of the inhale and the pause and then the, the um, uh, exhale until we get a respiratory condition or an illness and then it becomes precious. But actually this experience of life is precious every single moment. And it's not the, mm, we're not trying to program ourselves to be maniacal about the breath itself, obsessive about it, you know, in our everyday lives. What we're inviting ourselves to do over and over again is to recognize this life however it's arising, whether it's in the breath, whether it's in the thought, whether it's in a physical feeling. We turn to the walking and movement meditation because we often take for granted that we should be able to ambulate. We should be able to move through the world with ease. And I certainly have had experiences as this body changes that that is not always the case. We are invited to look at this range that what is um, named in Taoist tradition, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, because there is no life that has only sorrows or only joys. It just isn't a possibility. But sometimes we can get lost in one or the other. And so to be able to hold the full range of our life 
in our awareness. And the complexity of all of that. It's, it's never pleasant or unpleasant. There is so much lived in between those experiences that allows the word bittersweet to arise. It's complex. And this is who we are. This is the, the, one of the fundamental questions of Eastern spiritual practice of who am I? This is where that question becomes a repeating koan in the Zen tradition, of repeating question that never is fully answered, but actually invites us to discover more and more who we are as individuals. But then the question can turn collectively, who are we in this human life? And we usually, in our patterned conditions, when we're not paying attention, when we're taking things for granted, we usually push things away that we don't like, or we want more of that which is pleasant. That's just the buffeting of the mind and heart that happens. And all of that manipulation is not the life that's appearing itself. We are, when we are doing that, we are actually living what we think life should be. We're living in our realm and our ability to think. And this is where that mm, aphorism, thought becomes reality, it's not the content of our thought that becomes reality. It's that the thinking process becomes our reality. And we get lost in it because it becomes so seductive. My mom is uh, 101 and um, her cognitive decline, which um, I still... Uh, hesitate calling dementia because dementia is such a destination and she's somewhere on the spectrum. Um, But her reality is her paranoid, deluded, suspicious thoughts that randomly arise for no apparent reason. And she's not able to see beyond those thoughts. We are so much more than who we think we are. And our awareness practice is inviting us over and over again. What is this life beyond what I think it should be or what I think it is? I can see it with mom. She can't see it herself because of her disease. And so it's actually teaching me, yes, it is possible. Because in the moments there are moments in which she is still mom. And it allows me to hold the moments in which she is not. We come very close to life when this begins to have momentum. 
And what I mean by close to life, I mean the word that we invoked in the very um, first evening of intimacy. We, we get to know the details of our life. And we, so we start with an object that's pretty neutral, that, that is familiar at least um, uh, um, ambiently, which is the breath. It's always with us and we get to know it the minute sensations, the texture, the, the temperature, the, the ebb and the flow, the crescendo of the inhale. And sometimes, I don't know if this is your experience, but when, when I'm practicing, what brings me back to the breath is not my own efforts or my own um, determination. It's the sound of someone else breathing that reminds me to come back. And this is where we support each other in this collective practice. Sati, which is the Pali word for mindfulness, one component of its translation is the ability to remember. The ability to remember to come back, whether it's to the breath, but ultimately the trajectory of the remembering is remembering to come back to that which leads to freedom. I want to talk about sati and mindfulness a little bit because it's so, you know, um, popular in the, the, the media these days. And, um, it refers to, in Buddhist psychology, a, um, uh, a distinction of citta, which is mind-heart. And so this is a little bit different than Western psychological frameworks. Not to, and I'm not comparing and I'm not you know, um, um, saying that one is, is more accurate than the other. They are very complementary, actually. But in Eastern psychology, in Buddhist psychology, the mind-heart are one. So uh, I tell the story that when, when my father used to, when he was alive, used to say, I think his hand would come here because that's the cultural conditioning. And so the mind-heart is involved in the mindfulness. So actually the... Um, the Reed David's translation of sati, of mindfulness, feels a little uh, limited because it's really um, inferring the involvement of the heart. It's a mind heartfulness that we're, that we're developing this awareness to. That if you can even touch into your own experience of as you come and allow your awareness to touch your experience without pushing it away, without wanting more of it, that touch is kindness itself. That touch is the non-judgment. And even if the experience that you're having is judgment, which is so, you know, prevalent in our, in our culture. 
the invitation is, is it possible to not judge the judgment? Can we feel that experience? And in that touching of the judgment, you're already beginning to apply the antidote. This paying attention, touching the awareness to the experience, regardless of what it is, this paying attention is a profound act of love. It's a profound act of love in allowing the moment, allowing you, allowing me to be who we are in this moment without needing to second guess or question or, or criticize. I keep learning about this, this um, dynamic of paying attention as love these days from my grandkids. Um, and we all have been kids, so we know that when we're not being paid attention to, we feel dismissed or dissed. And so I've, I feel that when I'm with Oliver or Jane, that if I'm distracted, you know, even if it's around something that I feel that I need to be distracted by, like my mom, they're not feeling me. But what I learned, when, especially when Oliver was born, he's six now, is um, he, he, of, of all the grandkids, he's the one that always calls me Grandpa Larry. And as soon as those words come out of his mouth, I melt. You know, he's paying attention to me in a way that I never expected a six-year-old to pay attention to me. This is, this is not about just me paying attention to them. It's I'm so feeling this dynamic that paying attention and being aware of someone else is love. So let's connect those dots. When you're paying attention to your own experience in these mm, invitations, in the guidance that we're offering, in the techniques, in the recipe that you're, you're formulating, you are giving yourself this profound experience of love. That we look everywhere else in our world for. And that intimacy, that tenderness, is available as soon as we turn our attention to ourselves with this aspiration of kindness in each moment. As the great Dharma teacher Margaret Cho writes, If you are a woman, if you are a person of color, if you are gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, if you're a person of size, if you're a person with different abilities, if you're a person of intelligence, if you're a person of integrity, then you are considered a minority in this world. And it's going to be really hard to find messages of self-love and support anywhere, especially in the women's and gay culture.
gay men's culture. It's all about how you have to look a certain way or else you're worthless. You know, when you look in a mirror and, and you think, ugh, I'm so old, I'm so ugly. Don't you know that's not your authentic self, but that's billions upon billions of dollars of advertising and magazines and movies and billboards all geared to make you feel shitty about yourself so that you will take your hard-earned work and spend it on some turnaround cream that doesn't turn around shit. <laughs> when you don't have self-esteem, you will hesitate before you do anything in your life. You will hesitate to go for the job you really want to go for. You will hesitate to ask for a raise. You will hesitate to report violence. You will hesitate to defend yourself when you're discriminated against because of your race or your sexuality or your size or your abilities or your gender. You will hesitate to vote. You will hesitate to dream. For us to have self-esteem is truly an act of revolution. This self-esteem, this acknowledgement of who we are in this moment without needing to question anything about our experience is not an attachment to self. It is not pride in the small p. It is not hubris. It is the experience, it is the joy that our lives are totally worthy to belong in this life. And as I was saying about the range, the total belonging in this life. It means that the sorrows and the joys coexist, commingle, intermingle, that all of those experiences deserve our attention and yes, our love. It's, it's, it's like those of us who are, uh, have been or are in intimate partners, partnerships or with your family. Is it possible to love someone without loving all of who they are? When, I, when I'm feeling that, that experience with my husband, I don't get a choice of just loving all the good side. When I'm with my mom, I don't get a choice of loving, him, loving her when she's mom. I have to love her when she's not there for me. And as we turn this energy of kindness and awareness to those sorrows, what is said to arise in the Buddhist psychology and teachings is the experience of compassion. This, um, the image that's offered is the quivering of the heart. It's that tender that even if a mosquito were to land on it, we would feel it. And again, that, that tenderness is, is an aspect of the intimacy that we get to work with in our lives. So another image in our practice is, is that our practice thrives 
and soars on the wings of this great bird, the wing of wisdom and insight, but also kindness and compassion. That we cannot actually do this process, walk this path together without both. And this ground of compassion starts with ourselves. We know that if we are working in the world and serving others without filling our own tanks of, of resources, what will happen is that we will just burn out. And that doesn't serve the purpose of, of others and it doesn't serve the purpose for ourselves. our ability to be with the first noble truth, basically, the suffering, the pain, the difficulty, our ability to just be tender with it, be with it tenderly as well, that is also the place where insight begins to arise. I, don't, I was trained as a social worker and I had to learn the hard way because these teach- I had not encountered these teachings when I was trained. And so I would go and try to do my job. And you see a need, and sometimes it's a really urgent need. And I don't know if you've had this experience, but I would go to fix the need and I would actually make it worse. Because I just went for it. I went for what I thought should happen, you know, what I I surmised should happen. I didn't sit with learning from um, meeting the people where they were and learning what was really called for. And, you know, even when a, a friend comes to me in distress, the first thing that they are probably wanting from me is not to be fixed, but to be witnessed, to be met. Again, that's just the awareness coming in and touching the experience, allowing it to be so that we can learn what is needed. And so, when the judgment does arise, when there's discomfort in the, in the sitting practice or the walking practice, can we turn our kind attention to that experience as well? Even if it's as small as an itch. It's an interesting practice, this itch. Because what do we usually do when that experience comes up. Somebody just did it in the room. We scratch it. And why do we scratch it? We scratch it to make it go away. 
Well, you know, in reality, we know that the itch is not going to kill us. It's not going to, you know... So what would it be like to practice through? What would it be like to see the other side of an itch? We know it's going to be impermanent. But so often we don't allow ourselves that experience. And how many itches do we scratch in the world to make it go away? This is the template of the practice. How often do we try to fix things or make unpleasant situations go away without really understanding. It can have global consequences. So in 2010, after the earthquake in Haiti, an epidemic of cholera broke out and it killed thousands of people, sickened even more. And the fundamental difference between that and the natural disaster that occurred was that there was really strong evidence that the international workers weren't aware of the hygiene that was necessary and actually made things worse. Our ability to really be with the moment in order to learn what we need to do next. To, to notice the moments and then to notice the moments in between the moments. I love when Kanda in the walking meditation was referring to the movement between the movements. This is how we parse our awareness so it becomes more and more detailed. We notice the pause between the inhale and the exhale. that allows us to hold the whole experience. There was a um, art exhibition at the Guggenheim when I was in New York, uh, uh, I think it was about a year and a half ago. And um, it was a Korean artist from, who was practicing in Japan. His name is Liu Fan. And he has these expansive white canvases with just like <clears throat> one or two hugely black strokes. And it was reminiscent of abstract expressionism, but coming from a completely different cultural uh, interpretation. And he talks about the in-between space. He talks about the, resonate, or the resonance in between events, in between the event of this stroke and that stroke. If a bell were struck, he writes, the sound reverberates into this distance. Similarly, if a point filled with mental energy is painted on a canvas or a wall, it sends vibrations into the surrounding unpainted space. Resonant space, or yohaku, transcends objects and words, leading people to silence and causing them to breathe infinity. When I say I, does it 
include things around me. When I say I, doesn't it include the unknown mountain and streams? This artist goes into the intimacy of a particular event, whether it's the bell, whether it's the stroke, and looks at the space in between these moments to pay attention. And this is, I think, where Thich Nhat Hanh is, dis- is, is inviting us to explore when he says, what are the non-flower elements of a flower? What are the non-human elements of our human lives? How would our climate justice work operate if we held that expansive consciousness? This is the totality of our life, the complexity. And it's so important for those of us who are involved in social justice work because amidst the violence and the disparity and the incessant, seemingly ceaseless suffering of our culture, whether it's around racism or violence, I don't have to go through the litany. We know it deeply. We can easily fall into this despair of not this again. This is never going to change. What are the non-elements of this despair? What are the moments in between? So after the Baltimore uprisings, um, there was, I had to notice a story of a young boy who was offering bottles of water to the police lineup who were dressed in military gear. Very courageous young man. Okay, that was one thing that I noticed. But then, post-Ferguson, in a protest in Portland, another young man, Devante Hart, it's a, it's a long story that I won't get into, but uh, he was incredibly emotional in, in the confrontation with the police and, and he walked into the protest with this, with this sign, free hugs. Is, is, is this coincidental? Is this, you know, like some saccharine coincidence that is, that is worthy of cynicism? Or is, this, is there something there to pay attention to? To hold together with the tragedy and the disparity. The sister of one of the victims in uh, Charleston. I acknowledge I am very angry, but my sister taught me that we are the family that we that love built. We have no room for hating. We can react 
with perhaps doubt or questioning. Is forgiveness enough? Is this enough? Is that all it is about? Of course it's not enough. Of course forgiveness is a process and is part of the process. It's not the complete answer. But what these moments show me at least is people not turning away even when life feels as if it's impossible, that they are turning towards it with this intention to be with it, that they don't turn away from even unthinkable tragedy, that they find ways of holding the moments Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King wrote, we must accept finite disappointment, but we must never lose infinite hope. What is the space between disappointment and hope that will allow us to hold that full range? Because we can get so lost in the first noble truth. We can be, we can we can lose that infinite hope. (laughs) And being able to hold the both and, to hold the range in between, is the resiliency we're seeking. Yes, I can be with this too. I may not be able to solve it. I may not be able to know what to do next but I can be with this too. And sometimes this feels like a difficult practice, the most difficult practice. And so then the invitation is, can we practice on the practice itself? Can we be kind to the kindness practice? I have been working my own process in this. And so I've come up with a mantra that for me is not unlike the repetition of loving kindness phrases that help me remind what my aspirations are. So the mantra goes, if I can't be forgiving and loving in this moment, may I be kind. If I can't be kind in this moment, may I be non-judgmental. If I can't be non-judgmental in this moment, may I at least not cause harm. And you can see where this is going. And if I cannot, if I cannot not cause harm, may I cause the least harm possible. So that even in my failure, even in my imperfection, even in my lack of awareness, there's still this inclination towards freedom. There's still this inclination towards the nobility of practice. And 
as kanda, amana, and noli in different practices over the day. This is where the continuity comes in. When the continuity of the practice gets hardwired into whatever we do, whether it's in the sitting or the transitions into the movement or the walking, taking a shower, putting on our clothes, standing in line for, for the meals. It is not just meditation and mindfulness, kindness are not singular activities. They are all of our activities. This is work that is so needed in this world. We change ourselves from the inside out, but we change the world in, in that process as well. So Sayadaw Upandita, who is one of the teachers of many of our teachers, uh, um, who uh, uh, was one of the uh, Dharma masters in, in uh, Myanmar, has written, practicing mindfulness means building peaceful little worlds within each of those who, pr- who practice. Without peace in our little worlds, crying out for peace in the big world with clenched fists and raised arms is something to think about. Because it's not just developing an inner peaceful world. The sacredness of our spiritual practice is not a passive experience. It is about how to act in the world with wisdom and compassion. Our faith calls us to action to reduce the harm and suffering in the world around us. And when that life is emerging as the first noble truth, when life becomes difficult and hard, do our hearts have to become difficult and hard? That's the choice point that awareness invites us to. That the possibility of freedom is not dependent on external conditions. And that in the middle of difficulty, there's still the possibility of freedom. We can change our lives because we think we should be different than how we are, because we don't like our mistakes or, you know, have judgments about our flaws or hate certain aspects of our personalities or our upbringing. Or we can change our lives because we are so tenderly aware of how precious this life is. How incredulous this this sacredness and beauty and worthiness to be in this life. And that there is no other path. 
than to create less suffering and greater love for all of us. These are two really different experiences. And we can apply that to our collective experience. We can, we can work to change conditions in the world because we think the world should be different, must be different. Because we can't stand the harm that's being caused. Because we hate the injustice. Because we are outraged. Or we can be inspired to change the world because we love it so dearly. Because it is not just my life, but our life that is so brilliantly precious. And that we cannot do anything else except to honor all of life and to open our hearts as wide as the world itself. These are two different experiences. Working to change the world because we love it or hate it. Which is the path to freedom? Or rather, which is the path that is already free? And this is possible. The tenderness of the mind heartfulness and the kindness is possible. The Buddha said that they would not teach that which we could not do. And that makes it such a sacred and noble journey for all of us. Thank you for joining us on this path. So I believe we have a 30-minute walking period and we'll come back into the hall for um, another 30-minute sitting period before the evening meal. So many thanks for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.